Let's seek the Spirit's teaching. Lord, we do this routinely as we gather before your word, but we do so not by ritual, but because we are utterly dependent upon the instruction of the Spirit of God to help us understand the significance of what we read, to be convicted of sin, to see what is righteous and good, and to correct our way and to chart our course forward for the glory of your name. So we pray that in this time together, that the Spirit of God would teach us and that we would be open to receive the implanted word. I pray that we would clear out the weeds in our soul, even now in prayer, as we lift prayers of confession and preparation. And I ask that you would sow good seed of the word in our heart today, and that our church would respond together to what we find in the text before us. And as you would lead us and direct us to consider other passages and the truth that we need to receive today. We pray in behalf of those whose eyes remain blind to the truth of your word and pray that you would open those eyes and know that there is, this is the only answer. Ultimately, we pray, Father, that you would draw to yourself those who know not Christ and sanctify your church through this time together. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Have you received the gift of eternal life? Can you say with assurance that you have been born again by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? As Romans 8.16 indicates, does the Holy Spirit witness with your spirit that you are God's child? If you say yes by the grace of God alone, this is true of me, then know this believer you will spend the rest of your life discovering who you truly are in Christ. And you will never get it. We will never fully in this life grasp the supernatural implications of what it means that the Spirit of God regenerates our soul, takes up residence within us, and transforms us into the children of God. And one strong evidence of this ongoing ignorance is the way we live. The way we live often does not reflect what has really taken place in our soul, what God has done by His Spirit. In his first letter to the Corinthian believers, the Apostle Paul had a lot of stuff to deal with with this church. They were struggling on on many levels. And as we've chased this theme throughout the book, it is consistent that he, he continues to bring them back to the point that you do not know who you are. You are not living out what God has actually done in your life. And as Paul works to that, and he starts here in these first two chapters, making it very clear that we must focus upon the necessity of word and spirit. So as he opens his counsel to them, he labors to help the church understand and uphold the place of word and spirit among them. This is utterly crucial. He stresses that it is by word and spirit that the risen, reigning, returning Christ saves and keeps his people. The word 
God reveals the message of salvation in Christ crucified and risen, and through that word, He transforms the soul. Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, illumines that message, then regenerates the human spirit to receive that message by faith. So word and spirit coming together to form the church is an utterly essential understanding on the part of the church and also a task for us to maintain. Because by the Word and Spirit, we become a radically new creation, liberated from the spirit of this world and the realm of spiritual death. And if we wish to live as the people we were saved by Christ to be, then we must see, we must value, we must protect the proper place of Word and Spirit in our life together as Christ's body. And what happens if we fail to do this as a church? If we fail to do this, Eden Baptist Church will eventually become a social club of people who perform dead religious rituals. The life is in the Word and Spirit as they change and transform us. And we must protect that. So how do we do that as a church? How do we protect and promote the distinctive spiritual life that distinguishes God's people in a dark and dying world? We learn from Paul's counsel that first of all, we must preach God's Word the right way. We must preach God's Word the right way. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Verse 1, I, when I came to you, what Paul is saying is I've honored the principle I've been commending to you in chapter 1 as we have it here. That's exactly how I preach the gospel to you. Remember verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize. This is chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Remembering again, as we've looked at this first chapter a couple of weeks ago, remember the social context in Corinth. There was a high value placed on speech that was polished, that was clever, that was philosophical in its orientation, touching the strains of philosophy that were promoted in that time. It was appealing then to the wisdom of man, and it was pointing listeners to tap the inner light of intellectual pride, so that as the individual spoke, he was serving the hearers by telling them what they wanted to hear saying it such a way that made it entertaining and just enjoyable. And it was a temptation then for every preacher of the Word of God coming into that city, into that culture, it was a temptation to all of them to wrap their speech in this fancy packaging. 
to depend on rhetorical powers and philosophical categories that brokered in man's wisdom. And that temptation is with us today. It's just different trappings. But there are churches that gather together and there are preachers that proclaim at least what they pretend to be the Word of God. Really what they're promoting is health. Really what they're promoting is the acquisition of wealth. They're promoting how you can move up in friendship. They're speaking in terms primarily calibrated to social activism, to becoming the best you, to psychological well-being. It's subtle. It may not be entirely obvious because there might even be an open Bible. But the way that the message is calibrated starts outside the church and the world and brings that philosophy in and then sees everything through that lens. And word and spirit are soon forgotten. The result is the gospel of Jesus Christ is suffocated. The Bible is twisted to fit the mold of the world's expectations and values. Paul said, I did not come to you that way. You know this. You were born again by the Word and Spirit as I proclaimed it fairly, accurately. I didn't twist it to fit what the culture was demanding. I preach God's Word to you in a very different way than was the expectation. Why is that? Verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 2, there's an, there's an interpretation of this verse which I would reject, but some would say... Go back to Acts 17, as Paul approached Athens, he used a philosophical approach. He used the terminology of their setting, and he really didn't preach the gospel accurately. But then he came to to Corinth in Acts 18, and he changed his ways. I think that's foolishness. I think all that... Sorry, I shouldn't call that foolishness. I should say I disagree with that interpretation. There's good people who think that. But I don't follow that interpretation. I think this is what Paul always did. is to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the emphasis here in verse 2 falls on what? It falls on Him crucified. That was a foolish idea in Corinth. The idea that a God would come and die made utterly no sense. It was a reason for ridicule. And he said, that's what I preached. The very word from God that was so offensive in our city. All he means here then is that he preached God's revealed word faithfully. He did not doctor the message with worldly methods to attract hearers. And what was that message? It was Christ It was the one sent by God, and it was his crucifixion, his death in the place of sinners, sealed by his resurrection. A crucified Savior, again, was offensive and downright stupid in the ears of unbelievers. But Paul came into the city proclaiming that message. God enlightened that message, and the Corinthians received it. He proclaimed that truth fearlessly and with fidelity. Did he speak with bold bombast and artsy rhetorical ideas that the Corinthians would have enjoyed? No, verse 3, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech, my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration 
of the Spirit and power. Don't take weakness and trembling as Paul's fear of man. The weakness and the trembling, he was trembling at the importance of the message. He was weak as he assessed his own inadequacy to proclaim such life-transforming truth. I get it. It's just so much bigger than us. He came as a puny man with a massive message. And so many things that he could do could twist that message and harm that speech. The power wasn't in the speech. It was the message from God that would prove countercultural, would prove offensive, would prove silly to the world, but that glorious gospel message was preached. What is, how does he put it? In demonstration of the Spirit and power. By being faithful to the text, by saying what God was saying, there was a power there that could come no other way. That's how I came to you, not in self-dependence, not relying upon my speech, but trembling at the task, and trusting God, all of it, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. By preaching God's word straight up and relying on Scripture, Paul unleashed the very power of God to save sinners, and they were a demonstration of that reality. People were not awed by his physical appearance. They were not awed by his polished speech, by his clever rhetorical riffs and skills. They did not hear a message that tickled their ears and stroked their egos. They did not hear something that sounded right in Corinth. They heard... They heard the straightforward message of the eternal Son of God taking on flesh, dying in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of sin in their place, rising from the dead, reigning pouring out His Holy Spirit in transformation upon His people formed into His church and coming again. That was the message. And everything around that message, the way that it transforms those who believe in it, those who trust it for salvation, that message carried the very power of God to save their lost souls and to give them spiritual life. I wanted to do nothing to mess with that, Paul said. He preached in such a way that people did not trust in him, verse 5, but trusted in the power of God. And what that means, Eden Baptist Church, to us is that preaching can be calibrated to stoke the celebrity of the preacher. And that is ever a danger. When that happens, when the gathering is really about us, 
The gathering is really about one individual speaking or the church together. When it's about that, people walk away about as satisfied as a little kid that just had five pounds of jelly beans for breakfast. They got a real big smile on their face. And they're even more ill. Great time had by all. Aren't we great? But the power of God is just let out like air out of a balloon. That's the danger. Though Paul has spoken about the danger of human wisdom often already at this point in chapter 1, verse 17. Remember, they're the words of eloquent wisdom. That's where he's talking about this cultural context. Chapter 2 and verse 4, as he speaks again, there are plausible words of wisdom. He's, he's drawing lines that are they're pointing back to this same issue. How people want to hear certain things in Corinth as we want to hear certain things in our day. But this leads into the major section here of chapter 2 as he then speaks by way of qualification of the what. This is the how he preached to stay away from anything that took away from the power of the word. But what he preached, we must receive God's word as revelation from the Holy Spirit. We see the word that way. Verse 6, yet among the mature, we do not impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. The few things here that can trip us up, let's unwind those a little bit. First of all, verse 6, the mature, who are the mature Some would take this as mature believers in contrast to immature believers. Paul does speak to that point here in the book, but I don't think that's the point here. It does not fit the context. I think he's talking here about believers. They are mature in the sense that they have received the wisdom of God. They've not rejected the wisdom of God. So thinking of that again, verse 6, to the mature, to the believer, we do impart wisdom. I've been speaking against the wisdom, but I'm talking about the wisdom of the world. What exactly is the word that is preached? Notice that in verse 7, it is the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That message is the revealed word of God, not man. Now, as a church, we're well acquainted with this concept that God reveals His truth to us, but we can never lose the significance of this. Every false religion, every godless person, every philosophy, psychology, and club, even churches that are on track in some ways that begin to waffle on their trust in the Scriptures, all of it seeks a wisdom from below. That is, they rely on their own hearts to discover what seems right in their eyes, then they project those ideas onto God. But saving faith relies on a wisdom that is from above. This message that is revealed to us, that comes to us from the throne room of God and says, here is the truth. The world's wisdom, verse 6, is a wisdom devised in the hearts of spiritually dead people. It's always incomplete, it's wrong-headed, it's trendy, that is, it's dying. 
But in verse 7, this secret and hidden wisdom of God. Don't take that to be it's a mystery we can't solve. But in the biblical use of that word and that concept, it is this. God in eternity past has always known everything. He's never learned. He's never forgotten. But in his decree, in his plan, it would take time to reveal his saving purposes to man. At just the right time, God sent his son into the world to become the redeemer, as we've discussed earlier. It's this hidden mystery, this wisdom of God that was decreed before the ages for our glory, for that is a glory the believer will share with Christ through all eternity. Now concerning that revelation, so we're looking at the kind of the nature of God's word. It is his revelation to his people. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. They didn't understand, and we could just say there, what's this? The gospel. They didn't understand God's saving purposes, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That is, the Jewish and Roman authorities who did so were blind to the glories of Christ. Had the spiritual veil been lifted from their eyes, from their hearts, they would have trusted Christ, not crucified Him. But looking at the matter from the believer's perspective, Paul breaks into praise in verse 9. What no eye has seen, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has, however, revealed to us through the Spirit. A lot of people take verse 9 as a reference to heaven. Well, it certainly applies, but that's not the context. No eye has seen or ear heard. We don't come up with it, is the point. It's revealed from God. And He has revealed these things, verse 10. God has revealed to us these things through the Spirit. In verse 10, notice that word revealed. It is crucial to this section. It's not man's wisdom, but it is the revelation from God. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Spirit knows the very depths of the mind of God and reveals these truths to His people. So wisdom from above, truth that is revealed by God, It is not truth that we figure out on our own or we calibrate to the world's thinking, values, or priorities. Notice again that it is God's Spirit who, as the third person of the triune being, knows the deepest depths of God's mind and can reveal them to us. We were looking today in the adult class at the deity of the Holy Spirit. Here's an excellent statement to that. He knows the depths of the mind of God. That's a person who knows, and that is one holy divine, to know the deepest depths of the mind of God. We have been told in chapter 1 that God's thoughts are above our thoughts. We cannot know the depths of them. We cannot get to the bottom of them. But the Holy Spirit does and reveals these truths to us. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. That's not that He's looking for truth. It's that He is able to find it, to know it, to perceive it. 
Verse 11, for who knows, here by way of illustration, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Another indication of the spirit's divinity. But have, have you ever had someone judge your face the wrong way? Uh, man, these days with masks, I'm judging people the wrong way. I don't know who's who half the time. I keep making mistakes, forgive me. But uh, we get confused that way. But when someone reads your face, have you ever had that happen? Maybe you're in deep concentration and they think you're angry. Or maybe they think you're happy because you're smiling and you're not really smiling, you're wincing because you got a toothache. Or maybe they think you're ridiculing them and in your mind you're actually praising them. Or vice versa. They don't know you do. The spirit, your human spirit, knows exactly what you're thinking, even though many times what we're thinking would shock people or confuse them or turn them away or whatever. Well, no one knows exactly what you're thinking at any given time. However, if you speak to them and reveal what you're thinking, they may, assuming you're telling the truth, know exactly what you're thinking, so to speak. That's the point here. We can't know the mind of God, but the Holy Spirit of God takes what is from God and reveals it to us. This is the content of the word that we preach. What the Spirit has revealed of God's attributes, His decrees, His purposes, His salvation purposes in His Son. Now, if you have come to know those words... If you have been saved by the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit in response to the gospel, there are implications for you. And they're serious. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. To not receive the Spirit of the world is a bit scary. It means that I'm going to live out my life in this world constantly thinking differently than the world in which I live. What, and verse 12, what are the things freely given to us? I think that's the truth God reveals to His people by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. So when we find the mind of God in the instruction of the Spirit of God, it will put us at odds with the wisdom of the age. We begin to think differently. We begin to believe differently. And this in turn leads us to act and hope and desire differently. Our wanter is converted. And that can be really troubling. The things I've always lived for, the things I've always believed, now that the Spirit of God has revealed the truth of God to me, as I have come to saving faith in Him, I think differently. It can be intimidating. It can divide families. But it's the joy of the believer. For now, for the first time, I'm thinking the right way. Reminds me of the guy I've told you his story sometime in the past, but he was told by his family, don't you ever read the Bible. People read that Bible, they go insane. You will go insane if you read the Bible. He began to read, he read one chapter. 
he said that he like felt his head and his brain and twisted his neck around and said, I, I think I'm okay. And he read another chapter. And he kept reading and kept reading, kept stopping and testing, have I gone insane? Have I lost it here? Is this crazy? And then he came to the realization he wasn't going insane. He was beginning to think for the first time in his life. And he trusted the Lord. That's word and spirit coming together. Verse 13, we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The Greek text here is very difficult. I lean toward the translation, combining spiritual truths with spiritual terms or the like. I think the introduction of persons here, spiritual persons, is connecting to verse 14. Fits the context that follows very well. But I'm persuaded by those that think that it actually is pointing back to what precedes in the context. It's a long uh, intramural debate. But at any rate, we understand the basic point is that the truths that God has revealed through the Spirit come to us. And in our context, as a church, we receive that word. Notice this, words taught by the Spirit. Words taught by the Spirit. Again, we see here the personality of the Holy Spirit. He's not a force, but a teacher of God's Word. And think on that, Christian. He's a teacher of the Word of God. We notice the negative in verse 13. These living words of the living God that give life to His people do not come from human wisdom. And this should cause us to tremble. It is only the Word of God that saves and sanctifies. We muck it up and we drain it of its power when we begin to mold the Bible into the world's thinking. When we begin to speak in the church the truths of God from the way that it is dictated to us in our society. This does not mean that every idea an unbeliever has is evil or necessarily wrong. It does not mean that when it comes to how the world got here, that no one can possibly do any scientific research and come up with truths. But when it comes to origins, God's Word reveals something very different than what people want to believe. It's always been that way. When it comes to who God is, when it comes to what is right and what is wrong, when it comes to the answer of what is wrong, the unbeliever is lost. We receive truth in spiritual terms that is a revelation from God, and it does distinguish us from a world separated from Him. And Paul moves now then very naturally to that consideration. This third point could be a sub-point of the second, but I'll just separate it out here with the who. We must see that only believers are able to receive God's Word ultimately. Not to hear it, not even to some level understand it, but to truly receive it is only possible for one who has the work of the Spirit of God in his or her life. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Spiritual truths in spiritual terminology enlightened by the Spirit of God, he has none of that. 
And so he's not able to understand them. To such a person, God's revealed word is folly. Now, some of them will say it's just utter stupidity. But folly can involve other things. Some just say it's unnecessary. It's unwise for me to go that way. It's untrustworthy. It's not worth the time. You feel this like me on Sunday morning when I drive to church? I see this guy walking out on the sidewalk for going for a long walk. He sees me in my Sunday stuff, you know, and I just, he probably thinks I'm utterly nuts. Why would you not be going for a walk on this beautiful day? Guy hooking up his, his boat to head out to the lake, and there I am going to hear words. It's just, there's no category. How could you be so foolish? I suspect that many think this. But it's because there's no illuminating power of the Spirit of God to see the truth of God. Will you focus on this phrase in verse 14 just for a moment? He is not able to understand them. The capacity to understand the truth that God has revealed, which changes and transforms our lives, there's not an ability to understand. Most unbelievers hear the gospel and reject it and pride themselves in believing that they are too sophisticated for such a message. Or they're too busy for such a message. Or they snicker and say they love their sin too much to really care. Or in some other way, arrogantly or dismissively say, I hear the message of Christ crucified and risen, I just not for me. But the truth that the Spirit of God reveals to His church is they cannot understand. There's no capacity there. The only hope for one blinded to the truth of God is God. He alone can open the eyes to see what a blind person cannot see. And he does this all the time. And so if you say, I, you know, I, I'm here, I'm at church, I'm hearing these things, but I know I've not embraced Christ as my Savior. I know I haven't come to believe in Jesus crucified and risen. If you're there in that spot, first of all, let me say, we love that you're here. We want you to be here. We want you to continue hearing. And it's not going to help you at all to just turn on, shut your ears, turn away, and never come back. But on the basis of this verse, I would say to you that what you must do above all else is plead with God to open your eyes. There's a story about a blind man called Bartimaeus, and he just called out to Jesus and said, I can't see. Will you help me see? And Jesus answered his prayer. That's a prayer I would encourage you to pray. You can't do this by your own smarts. Ask him to open your blind eyes and to see the glorious truth of what Christ has done to give you life in his name. Pray to that end. In contrast to such a blinded soul, verse 15, the spiritual person, this is one with the Spirit of God. This isn't some special Christian. 
But the spiritual person, verse 15, who has the Spirit of God, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Well, that can be misinterpreted, but the idea here is not like, don't you talk to me, I have the Spirit of God, don't bother me, I know what's right. It's not that at all. It's speaking here of the unbeliever. The unbeliever cannot look at the Christian who has ideas that God has revealed and then judge him for that. You are unloving because you believe this or that. No, you don't understand. God has revealed his truth and it's that which I'm trusting and believing. So the unbeliever cannot judge the believer who has this new life. And this new insight, these open eyes, doesn't mean that believers cannot judge one another, hold one another accountable. Just read 1 Corinthians 5. That, will be, that thought will be dissipated immediately. But the world cannot judge what we believe when what we believe is revealed by God himself. 4 verse 16, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Not us. But we have the mind of Christ. By word and spirit, we now think the thoughts of Jesus. It does not mean that we use this mind of Christ as we should. It does not mean that we're always right. It means that the more we rely upon God's word in faith, the more we access the mind of Christ, which is indeed revealed to us. The world will reject our ideas But when we trust what God's Word says, we speak the truth. We speak the truth about human sexuality. We speak the truth about social justice. We speak the truth about wealth. The role of men, women, and children in the home and church. What is wrong with people? We speak the truth about the authoritative solution to humanity's sin. We have the mind of Christ in that way. It doesn't mean you or I are always right, but it means we have the truth of God. And we start there. We don't start in the world and calibrate the church's message to what it expects about these things and others like them, but rather we start with the revealed truth of God And we work out from there. Just a few points of application here briefly. Number one, many in our world charge Christians now on the basis of verse 15 and 16, 14 to 16. They would charge us with arrogance. Have you faced this? How on earth can you say you know the truth? And how can you be so arrogant to say that everyone else must receive the truth that you have? We hear this objection often. Your way is the only right way? Really? Well, we understand such an objection comes only from someone blinded to the truth of God. We do not believe we are better than anyone. We do not force anyone to believe anything as if we could. The truth is we were as blind as anyone else. Blind to the truth, all of us, but we are no longer blind to that truth. We once were blind, as the hymn says, but now I see. If I see, I see. 
picture a man and a woman sitting on an airplane. Not many people on the flight. They both are sitting on a window seat on opposite sides of the plane. And the airplane is flying through a thick bank of clouds and it's just that white haze. They don't see anything. There's the, neither one of them. And the flight continues. And suddenly on the one side of the plane where the woman is sitting, the clouds break. And she looks down upon the most beautiful scene she's ever seen in her life. The sun is shining off the clouds and coloring them with brilliance. And down below, she sees sparkling rivers and lush mountains and a glimmering ocean. It is a glorious scene that has broken out. And she says, wow, the beauty she calls to the guy sitting across. She says, you've got to come and see this. Come over on this side of the plane. This, this is unbelievable. He looks out his window, and it's just cloud. He looks at her and says, what on earth are you talking about? Look at it. There's nothing there. I don't know what you're talking you, She starts to think she's nuts. And then as she says, no, 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 come over and look out my window. It's, he's, the air, does, does he say Wow, the arrogance of this woman to think that I don't have a good window seat and she does. No, by any normal stretch, he just goes over and looks and he too is stunned. Well, we're like that woman sitting there and we've seen it. And we're talking in a lost world to people who see nothing. They're going to remain blind. They're going to think that we're arrogant. We're not arrogant. We see the truth has been revealed. We see it. It's real. As born again, spirit indwelt believers in Christ, we have the view and our eyes are open now by God. Through no merit of our own, we perceive the mind of Christ. We've trusted the gospel and it transforms the way that we live. Number two, we must also then see the threat that faces us as a church in light of this text. The temptation will always be to calibrate our preaching and our teaching to the expectations and the values of a world that is blinded to the gospel. They're not thinking in a gospel way. They're thinking in a human-centered way. And when that message begins to mold how we handle the scriptures, we're in trouble. There are churches that seem to specialize in parroting the world's philosophies. Reading the Bible through the lens of what the world hands them as they sound a message that people really are happy to hear. Sounds right. Such churches seem to gain more hearers, but what they sacrifice, we must understand, Eden Baptist Church, what they sacrifice is the power of God. They sacrifice the power of God to save. So we must preserve the preaching and teaching of God's holy word in this church and other churches that we influence. This needs to be high priority to us, that word and spirit are put central and lifted up and protected. When we tap the world's convictions and methods, its aspirations and its schemes, we weaken the power of God's word among us. And only together can we defend it. Three, God's Word and Spirit operate in tandem. I think if you've been tracking with, this, with me through this passage, you say, that's really clear. 
Word and Spirit work together. But there is a constant pressure in this world to pull the two apart. To study the Word of God apart from the Spirit of God and to separate the Spirit of God from the Word of God. Verse 13 says the words that are taught by the Spirit. So what is the content of the Spirit's teaching? I can say that it's anything I want to make of it, or I can go to Scripture and what it is is the message of the cross, chapter 1, verse 18. It is the truth granted to us now in the written text of Scripture. This is what the Spirit of God teaches. We live in a day when Christians are running about the earth claiming that the Holy Spirit told them this and told them that as if they have the Holy Spirit by the tail. They seem to believe that by tapping the Holy Spirit, they can secure their own private message board of divine insight. It's like a GPS. You just plug it in. He tells you where to go, what to do. No. Such Christians become their own final court of appeal, trumping every objection to anything they think, to any way that they're living, by saying this, the Spirit told me to do that. The Holy Spirit, let's, we need to be straight on this as a church and continue forward. The Holy Spirit illumines God's Word. And that Word does not give us special insight on which car to buy on who to marry, and what shoes to wear, or whether it will rain. The Holy Spirit illumines the revealed Word of God and helps us conform to that Word. The Holy Spirit is not then our private tutor or our personal GPS who teaches us and directs us in ways wholly disconnected from the revealed Word of God. The two go together. When we truly heed the Holy Spirit of God, we will always be heeding the Word of God. Always. So if the Word and the Spirit are honored in a church, the church is not distinguished by wild messages from the Spirit, by lottery wins, by odd insights into hidden texts buried somewhere in the Old Testament. The Spirit revealed this special new truth to me. What distinguishes a church that is heeding the Spirit of God? Holiness. Christ-likeness. That's the evidence. Its, Its people are being transformed to look more and more like Jesus Christ. This is the Spirit's project. And he t- as He takes the unadulterated, revealed Word of the living God and He changes us by that Word in the light of the Spirit. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, there is, at least figuratively speaking, trembling in our heart just reminded again of what is at stake. How easily we can fail you. How easily we can turn away from word and spirit or divide the two. And how easily then we can fall off into a dead end spiritually as a church. Protect us, we pray. Guide us. Help us to continue to understand
the significant work of the Spirit in each of our lives and the illumination that allows us to see your word more accurately and in a life-changing way. Aid us as a church to that end. And for those who know not Christ, may they cry out to you to see. Give them sight. We, we recognize that everyone is responsible to obey the gospel, to respond, to trust in Christ as Savior. I pray that they'd not put that off on you and blame you for their blindness. Their blindness is their own. But I do pray that you would mercifully come alongside those who are in that blindness and that they'd plead for sight. Not be convinced by a church, a preacher, believer that's brought them here today or the like, but that they'd be convinced by the Word of God, illumined by the Spirit. And teach us, Lord, to walk in the Spirit, to be heeding and understanding Your Word in its context, accurately, faithfully, striving to understand what You have revealed to us. And Lord, we rejoice for the glory then that is in our future. Lord, help this church. Help Eden Baptist Church. Help the members that are here, those with us here today. Please help us to understand who we are in Christ. To know what word and spirit are accomplishing in our church. And please fan it into flame for the glory of your name and the good of your people eternally. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.